So let's give our attention to God's word. Ephesians 1 at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6 at verse 23, again the word of God, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And we'll end there as the letter to the Ephesians ends. May God add his blessing to his word. Well, in the history of the church, the Apostle John was known as and is known as the Apostle of Love. But many similarly have referred to the Apostle Paul as the Apostle of Grace. Because the theme of grace runs all the way through everything that, under the work of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote in Holy Scripture. And the letter to the Ephesians is no exception. Twelve times now, in the letter to the Ephesians, we have read that word grace. Twelve times, including this very last verse of the letter. Part of the benediction or the blessing that we've been considering for several weeks now. And so as we've come to verse 24, we have the blessing of grace. The blessing of grace. The letter began with grace as Paul said hello to the Ephesians. And now as he is saying goodbye, it is again the same word, grace. And as I was preparing and and praying and knowing that this sermon was coming in this focus on grace, I think sometimes preachers have a little bit of a sinking feeling when they come to passages like that, although we never should, but we do, passages that speak about love, and we have to preach on love. And we think, what am I going to say about love? It's so common to hear the word. What am I going to say? And similarly, here we have this word grace. Have we heard it too often? Do we say it too casually? Have we stopped thinking in one way or another that the grace of God is really amazing? I've sung that hymn, Amazing Grace, and I said the words, but I don't, I don't think I was really amazed many times when I sang those words. We can have even some kind of sentimental experience when we even just hear the tune of Amazing Grace. But is it really amazing to you or to me? Do I really know why it is so amazing? Grace. You know, for unbelievers, if you're still an unbeliever, 
you're a person who needs to be convicted of your need of grace. And then you need to be conquered by the wonder of grace in Jesus Christ. But even as believers, does pride still sometimes crop up in your, in your thinking? Or sometimes in the words that you speak or your actions? Well, when that happens, when pride rears its ugly head in our lives, we need to dig deep again into grace. Do we too easily look down upon others? Then we need to be reminded of grace. Why didn't I wake up this morning in a gutter? grace. Do you struggle? Are you someone who struggles with doubt and fears that you can really live the Christian life and finish the Christian life well? If that's who you are this morning, then you need the encouragement of grace, God's sufficient grace. You know, of all the gospel remedies that God provides in Scripture, the great pharmacy of the gospel revealed in Scripture, of all the remedies, some of you work at pharmacies, and there are some prescriptions that are more common than others, you probably have noticed. But I don't think there's a more common or needed prescription out of the pharmacy of the gospel of God than this, grace. Grace. It meets us wherever we are. It needs to meet us. Whatever relationship is being contemplated, whatever circumstance is being experienced, whatever uh, wrestlings are going on in our hearts, This is so often the remedy, grace. If we don't understand grace, we don't understand Christianity. If we have never experienced grace, we are not Christians. But if we know the blessing of grace, we are blessed indeed. I want to look very briefly at four things this morning about grace as Paul ends his letter with this blessing, the benediction of grace. First, the centrality of grace. And then the acts of grace, God's acts of grace. Then the abuse of grace. And lastly, the blessing of grace. This afternoon, we'll continue in this 24th verse to consider the evidence of grace that Paul writes here. Well, first, the centrality of grace. And here we have to helpfully remember, I think, who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, that self-righteous, proud Pharisee. You read a chapter like Philippians chapter 3, and you know that once Paul saw that all of his self-made righteousness was worthless before God, 
and the grace of God in Jesus Christ was savingly revealed to him, then everything for the Apostle Paul was seen through the corrective lens of grace. And that's true of the whole Bible and of every Christian. Grace is that free favor of God toward undeserving people, which puts them in a state of favor and blessing and strength. It is unmerited or even demerited favor. J.I. Packer, in, in a helpful little book, it's an old book, I don't know if it's been repeated, it's just called God's Words. It's a beautiful book. Uh, he calls grace, there's a chapter not unsurprisingly on grace, he calls grace the key word of Christianity. The key that unlocks the Bible and opens up the gospel. This is what he said. No need is more urgent than the need for a renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. Reformation and revival in the church today as yesterday is only from a rediscovery of grace. To the writers of the Bible, grace is a wonder. Their sense of man's corruption and demerit before God and the reality and justice of his wrath against sin is so strong that they find it simply staggering that there should be such a thing as grace at all, let alone grace that was so costly to God as the grace of Calvary. Grace is amazing. Boys and girls, perhaps you've heard of that the acronym. An acronym is just using the first letters of words. If you've heard the acronym that's been made with grace, sometimes acronyms are a bit, acronyms are a bit cheesy and unhelpful, but I think this one's very good. Grace. Have you heard it? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's good. That's worth remembering. God's riches at Christ's expense. And you take the first letter and what does it spell? Grace. Grace. What was it that changed the Apostle Paul? Grace. What was it that changed Martin Luther? Grace. What will change Canada? Grace. What will change you and change me? Grace. When many people think about life and even in some way think about God and the good things that come from the hand of God, the good things of life, there is often, isn't there, a sense, sometimes it's just an unspoken assumption but it's a very deeply rooted conviction that somehow, in some measure, I deserve at least a bit of these blessings, a bit of the good life, the good things, the, the happiness, the trouble-free times. I mentioned it before, this culture of entitlement. That's anti-grace. That's anti-grace. We can see it in children at times. We see it in politicians. But it's seen 
most of all, in human beings before a holy God. Sinful human beings before a holy God. And yet there is still a deep-rooted sense of entitlement. Of course I, I deserve at least some good things. It's so unfair when trouble comes into my life, they say to God, even. Too many people just assume that God is obliged to bless them and be gracious to them. Our sinful nature is so us-centered and not God-centered that we always look for something that we can take pride in. Always. I'm reading again a new biography of John Payton, who was a missionary from Glasgow, Reformed Presbyterian, to the South Sea Islands, the New Hebrides Islands. And when he was on the island of Aniwa, and boys and girls, these islands... uh, were populated by cannibals, men of these islands. Cannibals lived on these islands, and he went as a missionary to them. Someone back home said, are you crazy? You're going to be eaten by cannibals if you go there. And he said, well, one day you're going to be eaten by worms. And if I'm eaten by cannibals, I'll tell you one thing. On the day of resurrection, my body will raise as fair as yours. But he went to minister to cannibals. But on one occasion on the island of Anawa, he asked the chief, the village chief, about a pile of human bones that Peyton noticed beside the village. And the chief, with an air of superiority and pride, said, we are not like the men on Tana, a neighboring island. We are not like the men on Tana. We don't eat the bones. Something to take pride in. We're not as bad as those other people. We don't eat the bones. Beloved, until we come to the place of absolute conviction that we have no claim on God for any blessing whatsoever, We have not begun to take the first step in true faith and Christianity, biblical Christianity. And we will never know grace. Without the conviction about my utter unworthiness and depravity and inability and death-deserving status before God, grace will never be understood as being what it is. Grace, undeserved favor and blessing, a free gift, not a purchased commodity. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it is because people have an inadequate conception of sin that they have an inadequate conception of the grace of God. If you want to measure grace, then you must first measure the depths of sin. Grace is unmerited, undeserving, condescending love. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it well when he said, Grace is more than mercy and love. It super adds to them. It denotes not simply love, but the love of a sovereign, a transcendent superior, one that may do what he will, 
that may wholly choose whether he will love or not. There may be love between equals, and an inferior may love a superior, but love in a superior, and so superior that he may do what he will, in such a one love is called grace. And therefore grace is attributed to princes. They are said to be gracious to their subjects, whereas subjects cannot be gracious to princes. Now God, who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether ever he would love us or not, for him to love us, this is grace. And then to add into that the demerit of sin, and grace is truly amazing. From the Bible, in the Bible, from beginning to end, God's word is filled with the revelation of his grace. He is the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. The Spirit is the Spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, Acts 15.11. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? Of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Genesis chapter 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Jonah 4.2, Jonah prayed to the Lord, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. And then in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 2.7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The biblical gospel is a, a gospel that teaches that we are justified by the merit of Jesus Christ alone, and we are justified by the instrument of faith alone. But why? Why faith alone? Well, Paul explains in Romans 4.16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that, if you ever have asked, why does justification have to be by faith alone? Well, here's the biblical answer. The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. It's grace. Everything in the gospel is designed and calculated to magnify the grace of God. And grace is our only hope as sinners. Grace alone gives all the glory to God, and in only in pure grace could there ever be assurance of salvation. That's Paul's point. It is by grace that it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Where do you stand as a Christian? 
Lots of biblical answers, but here's one. Grace. I stand upon grace. It's my footing. Grace. Salvation comes only in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself is called the indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. And gift, boys and girls, means grace. Grace. Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. It's all grace. The centrality of grace. But let's move quickly just to the acts of grace. How does God act in grace? Well, the first action of grace is election. Election. God's eternal, unconditional choice of guilty sinners in order to be redeemed. Romans 11.5. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Election. Who is saved? Who is not? To what is it attributed? Anything in us? No. Grace. What do you have that you haven't received? What makes you differ from anyone else? It's grace. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given in, given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. 2 Timothy 1.9. Think of Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight to the praise of his glorious grace. Redemption, to be set free by a price, is all of grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. So that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, Titus 3.7. Regeneration, the new birth. How is redemption applied to people in their own lives? It begins with the new birth. And what do we read? Ephesians 2.5, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us. And those who are born again exercise faith. And faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Acts 18, 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Why do I believe? It's a gift of God. It's by grace. Repentance is by grace. Acts 11, 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It is given. It is grace. The acts of God's grace. So manifold and so wonderful in Scripture and grace is woven through them all. Grace is wonderful, but it can be abused. And that's what we'll consider next, the abuse of grace. The first abuse of grace is simply its refusal. Its refusal. Not submitting 
to the grace of God. And this comes out when people, in one way or another, seek to be reconciled with God through their own works, through the law, or through religion. This is legalism, technically. People can read the Bible and come out with some sort of religion and miss the grace of God. I just try to keep the Ten Commandments. I had one young man say to me, So I just asked, how's that going for you? Really? How can you say that except in legalistic pride? I like the Sermon on the Mount. People so often say that Jesus taught. Well, how's that going for you? To many, the Bible can only just be a book of inspiring thoughts or moral teachings. And if that's all it is, it can only be a word of condemnation. Galatians 5.3, Paul says, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Not as if they've lost their salvation, but they don't know grace. Because you're trying to be right with God through your own works. Romans 11.6, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. There is no good news for sinners in anything but the grace of God. But there is good news in the Bible. Acts 20, Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The good news of God's grace. Do you wonder sometimes how how you can witness to people? What you should say, what you should talk about? Well, here's here's a help. Just really, really think about God's grace. In life and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just talk to people about grace. Because that was Paul's mission. He testified to the good news of God's grace. I do not set aside the grace of God, said Paul in Galatians 2.21. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so the abuse of grace can be seen in its refusal or rejection, which is no good news. But the pendulum can swing the other way. And if people think that justification or being right with God is by works, then sometimes people also think that a justified person need not have any good works in their lives. And that is an abuse of grace as well. Packer again said the legalist goes about to establish his own righteousness, while the antinomian, the against law person, Rejoicing in the free gift of righteousness by faith sees no reason to keep the law anymore. Many of the antinomians of history have come out of legalism by reaction. But they, the pendulum swings past the teaching of the word of God. These people think, according to the old poem, free from the law, oh, blessed condition, I can live as I please and still get remission. That's antinomianism. Jude, verse 4, 
Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God. This is an abuse of grace. Who pervert the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And I think it's antinomianism in our day that is the real plague on the Western church. More than legalism was at the time of the Reformation, it's antinomianism. Because when any preaching or personal exhortation concerning obedience to God's law for Christians is denounced as legalism, that's an abuse of grace. That's a misunderstanding of grace. When persistent sin is placated by the mantra, there's grace for that. Or a misquoting of Romans 6.14, I am not under law, but under grace. That's an abuse of grace. To live in persistent sin and claim that you're not under law, but under grace. Because the whole context of Romans 6 is law-keeping for the believer. Romans 3 to 5 is justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. But in Romans 6, Paul begins to speak about the Christian life. And he turns us back to the law. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. People don't keep reading. They don't keep reading. They read, I'm not under law, but under grace, and they stop reading. If you would keep reading, you would hear Paul say, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey, whether slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's what grace does. The law is not the way to life, but it is the only way of life that God has revealed for human beings and especially Christians. The abuse of grace. We need to be on guard. But I want to end with the encouragement of the blessings of grace. The blessings of grace. In salvation, grace is the source of so many blessings and it's connected to such great encouragements as we live the Christian life. The Christian life begins with the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. But then every part of the Christian life is watered and nurtured by the grace of God. Listen, just listen to these. 2 Timothy 2.1 You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is strength for the Christian life in the grace of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. 
It's connected to the grace of God. James 4, 6, God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble. Humility comes through grace. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. Or that classic passage of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Whatever your thorn may be that the Lord is choosing to remain in your life. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. There's grace. There's grace. There are so many times when as a pastor, I don't know what to say to people. When things happen in their lives, I, and I don't know what, I can't say why, I don't know. And on a human level, you would never want those things to happen. But there is one thing that I can say with absolute certainty from the word of God to any child of God, whatever they may be experiencing in this life. On the basis of the word of God, I can come and say to you what you can read for yourself in the Bible. God saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And it will be sufficient for you. It will be. He cannot lie. He will not go back on his word. You need to trust. I need to trust. I need to stop being afraid and stop complaining and stop wishing. I'm speaking myself and stop wishing my life were not so and turn my, my attention to the grace of God. God, whatever you have ordained is ordained with your sufficient grace. Grace was what made the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Grace will make you work hard for Christ and in the kingdom. It, it won't make you kick back your feet and cruise through the Christian life because everything's a free gift. That's the welfare system. That's not the gospel. Paul worked harder than them all because of the grace that was shown to him. And yet, can't we so quickly say, why do I enjoy good things in my life? Why is my family blessed? Why do I have good things? Why is my life in peace? Because I work hard. Because I do what's right. Well, it's good to work hard and it's right to do what's right. But you don't understand grace if you answer that way. Because Paul goes on to say, no, I worked harder than all of them. And it's if the Holy Spirit 
It's the Holy Spirit, just corrective, corrective, corrective. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It always has to come back to grace. Generosity is promoted by grace. We want you to know about the grace that God had given the Macedonian churches, 2 Corinthians 8. That whole chapter on generous giving, it's grace. Evangelism. And with great power, the apostles gave, uh, and with great power, the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Grace for evangelism and grace from evangelism. Using our gifts in the church, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. And the encouragement to persevere to the end. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Think of the grace that will be revealed when we enter glory and then at the resurrection of our bodies. Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, let your conversation, your word, always be full of grace. If we have received the grace of God, grace ought to characterize our lives more and more and more. All of life full of grace. Doesn't mean we don't judge, but we do it without judgmentalism. That's what the gospel enables us to do, to be able to judge and to say things that are right and wrong and things that should be done and all those things, to judge without judgmentalism. That's what a gracious Christian is enabled to do. Our lives should be always marked by grace and not by the, the attitude of the unforgiving servant. Well... The blessing of grace to believers. These are believers. Paul's writing to them as believers, and yet he prays for grace. Because we continue to need grace more and more in the Christian life, not less and less. It doesn't begin with grace, and then we just get on with it. It's grace from beginning to end. Spurgeon has an interesting story he says, in my house, I have a picture that is made up of the portraits of my sons taken on their birthdays for 21 years. They begin in their perambulators, that's a stroller, and end as full-grown young men. So all of his sons on their birthday every year takes a picture and puts all these pictures together of his sons. This is interesting, he says, and according to nature. But alas, I have spiritual children whom I have wheeled about in the perambulator of tender comfort 20 years ago. And they are babies still, needing as much care as ever and are as little able to run alone. Ah, me. That so many who ought to be warriors are weaklings. That those who should be men of six feet high are so stunted as to be mere tom thumbs 
in grace? Am I a Tom Thumb in grace? Well, that's why Peter says, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.